Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Grow Your Path to Wellness. In case you missed it, last week we hosted Dr. Nicole Goddard, um, and she talked all about how she incorporates her patients' mental health into her orthopedic and sports medicine practice. So if you, you don't want to miss that, go back, check it out. Um, she was sharing how she you know, incorporates all kinds of different methods and kind of gives listeners some tips on things that they could do at home for themselves as well. Uh, this week, our guest is Dr. Leslie Cook, and we're talking all about um, neurodevelopmental disorders, particularly ADHD and, and children, and kind of navigating that into adult life. So, oh, we're so happy you're here, Leslie. Do you prefer Dr. Leslie or Leslie? That was Leslie works for me. Doctor is for the clients. Okay. Wanted to wanted to ask. We're happy to have you. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I have been looking forward to this for a little while, had my little talking points, and I just love the opportunity to be able to talk about these topics. Um, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I work predominantly in this area, but I have um, a long background in assessment. So it's been nice over my career to start an assessment and almost follow the therapeutic track with my career as well, from assessment to early intervention, and now I'm working mostly actually with um, middle school to high school aged kids, and then transitioning into adulthood, so college age um, adults with neurodevelopmental conditions. Lovely. How did you, you said your career mostly has been assessments. How did you like get into ADHD specifically? I was really lucky to be fired from my first practicum training. So it was not my fault. Maybe I should say let go rather than fired. The um, the training site that I was at actually closed. They lost their funding. Um, and so a friend of mine said, well, you know, I'm doing this neuropsych rotation in assessment um, and I like you and we get along. Would you like to come along so we don't end up with someone that I don't want to work with? And I was like, okay. And I ended up staying at that practice, doing a very intensive rotation for assessment. And then I stayed again for an assess or a, a therapy year and then came back and actually ran the practice with my friend years later, the same practice. So I was very lucky the universe just kind of led me there. And you obviously fell in love with it because, you, you know, I, I've had practicums, I've had internships, I've had jobs and not everything is your fit, right? Yes, I think that part of it has to do with my um, desire to solve problems and puzzles. It's probably why I also love law and order. Like I love any kind of mental exercise in solving an issue. And there is no way to describe how rewarding it is to spend the right amount of time and really give a family, especially a really good diagnosis that explains the challenge and pain that their child has been going through and gives them a window into a whole other way to exist. So I absolutely fell in love with it. I thought it was mentally stimulating, but also just incredibly rewarding. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's so many, like nowadays, because ADHD is such a legitimate and, and you know, a, a diagnosis on this, all the words, but I feel like right now it's like kind of thrown around. It's almost like a buzzword. So I was so excited to have you on. So you can, you know, even just kind of outlining for listeners, um, like many misconceptions or kind of to break down what ADHD really is and what it looks like and how it presents. 
Yeah, I think it's so important. We do see issues on both sides of that spectrum with the term being thrown around colloquially where it doesn't apply. And then we have all these issues with kids who do have ADHD and are not getting diagnosed. So I think this is going to be a really exciting conversation. I'm happy to be here. So do you mind just kind of, we can jump right in and you just sharing, maybe starting with the misconceptions of ADHD and, and kiddos? Sure. Um, probably the biggest misconception that I run into, and I run into this daily on social media, is that having true ADHD means somehow you're not able to function. So if you are 10 years old and you are doing okay in school, and you have some friends and you kind of get along with your parents, many, many clinicians, um, and I would say mostly medical doctors, but also some psychologists and therapists will immediately dismiss ADHD because there's a belief that you can't be functional. Uh, and I think that stems from the early days of the diagnosis where with most diagnoses, the people that we were labeling had very severe impairments. Um, I think most people, when they think of ADHD, think of usually the boy child who is jumping around the room and poking people with pencils and never turning their things in. But that's a very narrow window inside of ADHD. That's also legitimate. And as the research has progressed, I don't know that we in the assessment world and the primary research world have done a great job getting the science delivered down to the public, if that makes sense. So I think people don't know that there's this huge range. It's really a wide spectrum. Um, I think the second misconception, too, is that something can cause ADHD, that maybe parenting failures or a diet can induce symptoms of ADHD. But ADHD itself, when it's a, a true diagnosis, is actually a neurodevelopmental condition. So you're born with it. It's the way that your brain is organized. It's never going to go away, but you can certainly make a ton of progress in skills and in your functioning day-to-day -day with appropriate treatment and support. You kind of alluded to it, um, and I, don't, I was listening to some other podcast somewhere. Somewhere this piece of information came to me. They were talking, maybe a training too, they were talking about the differences um, in gender was as far as ADHD diagnosis. Do you mind um, sharing how that can look? Because you gave the example of like the hyperactive boy what might that look like, you know, in females? And then also, you know, is there any current research on how that looks like in non-binary or gender non-conforming children or adults? Yeah. Yeah. So right now, um, children assigned male at birth are twice as likely to receive an ADHD diagnosis than children assigned or adults um, assigned female. Originally, we really, really thought that that was likely genetic or hormonal based, but the research really hasn't borne that out. When people get really good assessments, it seems to be about equally likely for children assigned male or female. Uh, the difference we believe, although this is a huge area of ongoing research, is how we socialize children, what we teach them to compensate for and suppress. And so... Um, especially hyperactive children, we're usually teaching more suppression skills because what we see is what um, we identify as the problem. So getting up out of the seat or blurting out or poking people with pencils. I like to use that one because that was what my son got in trouble for all the time. Um, 
So those are easy to identify. And so we teach those kids typically to suppress the hyperactive behavior. But there is another side of ADHD, which is the inattentive side. And most of those symptoms are more internal. They're more the experience of the individual. So that would be issues holding focus, perhaps needing to fidget, but doing it more quietly, difficulty with organizing or remembering things, losing items. So when the presentation is, I call that quiet symptoms, when they're more quiet, we're not really teaching suppression. We're trying to teach skill-based tasks. So if you are assigned female at birth and you happen to also have more inattentive type symptoms, you're going to be taught more skills to compensate than the hyperactive outwardly facing kids. It's kind of a long explanation, so hang with me. So what happens is then when we go to assess or we ask the teacher, like, how is Janet over here doing? They might say, oh, Janet is a model student. Janet is just quiet. And Janet might be getting a lot of help at home, but teacher might not see that. And so those children are more likely to get underdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all. And then when they reach an older age and they don't have those supports around them, all of a sudden we have more obvious symptoms. And that's where you see college age and young adult women getting in huge numbers getting diagnosed now. Um, so sometimes teaching those compensatory skills can work against us if the rest of the environment doesn't recognize that they're still being impacted by these symptoms. For non-binary and gender non-conforming um, kids, they tend to follow the pattern of their assigned gender at birth, at least that's what the research suggests. Um, because of the impact of that early socialization before that transition is made. But I, for one, am so excited for this area of research. It's very young for ADHD, and I would love to see where all of the graduate students are going to go in all of this new research. That was not a long explanation at all. Like, I'm I know I'm craving more, and I know I have friends, family, colleagues that when they listen are going to be like, thank you, I, give me more. Um, can you, sorry, I know we're going off the bullets, but can you explain what some of those comp compensatory, compensatory <laughs> skills that they're taught? Is that part of the traditional American education system? Or like, what are those skills they're taught and how are they, how do they get those? Just sure. like, don't rock the boat. Yes. So the, the biggest thing we see with how we socialize children assigned female at birth is get along before you try to solve the problem. So a really intense emphasis on being kind, polite, don't interrupt. And if they don't have that severe hyperactivity, they might be able to do that. So we'll start flying under the radar. So um, be nice, be kind, don't be rude is one of the compensatory strategies, has positives and negatives. Some of the others are if they have really poor organization, but they're not hyperactive, we know that teachers tend to spend more time with those children, teaching them systems like color coding their belongings. They might give them more leeway in turning things in if they see that they're, tr that's a whole other thing we could talk about is the idea of trying harder. So if they see effort and they're not, a, a again, air quotes here, a problem in class, they will spend more time with those children. And so they might get access to more skills. Um, other things might be including letting them, and you'll notice that I have ADHD myself and I have a chair that moves and twists, so you'll see me moving. They might be more likely to be allowed to do that if they're able to do it within the parameters so they're not falling out of their chair or disrupting the class. 
Um, and then also their teachers are more likely to work with the parents of compliant children who are struggling. So they'll also get that parent support. It's kind of a wraparound support system. And I don't wanna say that that's bad, that's wonderful for children. The only issue is when that prevents diagnosis. So when people say, oh, well, see, if we just do all these things, she still, she doesn't have bad grades, so it couldn't be ADHD. Yeah, it's like this inherent assumption of their functioning. It's like only the superficial level of what you're seeing instead of like, you know, kind of a holistic approach or like the big picture approach of what could be underlying or what things are, you know, on internal rather than being expressed externally. Yeah. And, and there's a, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. There's a little trick that I give to either parents or adults seeking diagnosis that I find is really helpful, that when you're talking to the assessor to talk about the impact of the symptom on your functioning, not the functioning itself. So I'll give you an example for me. I was a straight A student in high school because I sacrificed everything else. So it took me four times as long to do anything. I lost my things all the time and had to buy multiples of everything, basically. So on the outside, my functioning was at a high level, but the impact on my life was severely negative. I had a lot of anxiety. I didn't have time to socialize. I wasn't a very happy kid in high school. So if you are getting an assessment for yourself or your child, make sure to talk about the impact of the symptom, maybe not the functioning itself. I love that. And I know we just made a, a note of that just like for our own brains and, and such. So thank you for that. I was also curious, and this might be something that might come up later. Maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, like in a different bullet. But this just like screams to me, like if if we, you know, the kind of slipping through the cracks or miss or underdiagnosed, are there common like co-occurring um, disorders or like that would hit me is like if they start to internalize things, is it very common to start to see it kind of develop into a depression or things that not changing, but them struggling with other co-occurring things along with their ADHD if they aren't getting that support that they need or, or so on. Yes. So unfortunately, 63% of children with ADHD have a co-occurring diagnosis that's usually related to mood or anxiety or learning disabilities. And that's the diagnosed individuals. And that's across lifespan. So not just children, that's children and adults. Um, a huge proportion of those co-occurring disorders are related conditions due to the impact of the ADHD. Um, a lot of people believe that just having ADHD makes you more likely to have other diagnoses, but when children and adults have appropriate treatment, and this is really important, when they are receiving appropriate medical treatment, so if medications are right for them and they're receiving treatment, they're far more likely to have um, addiction challenges, and far more likely to have, far less likely, sorry, less likely to have addiction challenges and especially less likely to have anxiety disorders um, because the negative impact isn't as severe on their functioning. You know, something that almost instantly came to my mind that I was like, I bet that it would be very common, like sadly common to, to see those other things kind of develop. Like I said, the ADHD is still a thing and, and but, uh, and especially probably over time, but we'll get into adult life and stuff in a minute. So, but thank you. I 
I figured that, but I never assumed so. So Leslie, I know, um, so I'm gonna ask the question cause I'm gonna move us along in our bullet points cause I know we could easily talk about this forever. Um, and then also I have like a, a additional question or like thought about it, how parents can support their kids with ADHD, which you've kind of already alluded to some things. And then the current screening process, typically um, the way I've seen it is like parent, doctor, school, right? Getting feedback from them. And based on the discussion we just had, it feels, and, and people that I've worked with, it feels like that could be a um, flawed system. <laughs> if we're not seeing these things in school or kids have developed compensatory, compensatory other skills <laughs> to make up for those, right? Um, so, sorry, wrapping that all up in one question, how can parents support their kids getting you know, an ADHD diagnosis or kids that do have ADHD already um, with those caveats? Sure. Um, in terms of diagnosis, the first, thing that I ask parents to do when they think that that might be something to look at for their child is to try to start noting some things down. And these are the things that I would note. When does your child function well and seem happy? So what times of day, what activities, um, is it when they're socializing, when they're doing math work, when they're playing video games? So first, just to get a look at when your child is at their best, but also their happiest, because that will also tell us something that is often missed in ADHD assessments, which is when is it not impacting them? And then secondly, um, also noting, when does more effort not end up with more result? That's really the essence of ADHD, that the executive function system, that, that system in the brain that helps us to know how, when, where, why to do something, to initiate action, to sustain it, it doesn't respond consistently to intention. So if you're observing your child and you're thinking, gosh, they're sitting there at the table trying to do their writing work for 25 minutes, crying and laying their head down and they just seem miserable, those are the really important things to look at because that's going to give your assessor an idea of is this a consistent and persistent pattern that you see? So that's number one. Um, just kind of be a scientist for your own child. Also for assessments, you're gonna wanna note when you first notice those things, if, you're, if we're talking about working with children, when did they first come up? Um, and has anyone ever made comments to you? Even if the teacher says, oh no, they couldn't possibly have anything wrong, they're just a delight to have in class. Asking questions like, well, if you did have something that you think that they could work on, what would it be? And if they say things like, you know, they often do the work but forget to turn it in, but it's okay because I know they mean well. That's a hallmark of ADHD is we give the effort and the result isn't there. Those little things will be very important for your assessor. Um, in terms of our assessment system, I have so much to say. We could probably go on an hour <laughs> about that by itself, um, it is a flawed system because we don't yet have really reliable tests for ADHD. Most people who have gotten an assessment and remember it probably remember this computer test that I call a, a clicky test. 
its its real name is the continuous performance test. So you click a button every time you see a letter, and when you see the letter X, you stop yourself. So it's an inhibition measure. It seems like it would be a great way to test for ADHD. The problem is when we did big meta studies, it doesn't reliably predict it. So when you're doing an assessment with um, an examiner, if they're really doing testing, it's very important to make sure that they are collecting a really thorough history of your child in addition to whatever testing they're doing because you really need to see both. And the same goes for just a history. If someone says, I'm just going to ask you these 15 questions and we'll decide, that's probably not enough. You want to see how they perform on some of these other tests. I was always so curious, like being in, you know, in my role, being a master's level clinician, and obviously I don't do that, you know, screening and I refer, you know, out and things. I've always wondered what, I mean, I've had what my clients have told me, you know, about what that screening is, which I haven't experienced a ton. Um, but then the also like something that hit me back the very beginning of my own you know, career, I was working only with, with kiddos and I remember the the Connors assessments, like the things you give the teachers and then you give the parents. And in I was wondering like your thoughts on that and how, you know, I felt like it was good, but I felt like it definitely left out a good bit. And sometimes it felt like kind of finger wagging at the kid, like instead of helpful. I don't know if that makes sense, but that was another piece. I'd never heard, I've heard of the computer test, but then I remember the Connors, the parent-child, or parent-teacher evaluation screeners, so. Yes, and we still do use, there's there's several of them, the Connors, the Basque, um, the challenge, so well, let me start with the good things. We'll always start with the positives. Um, the positives about those tests is they are um, referenced back to these big norm groups of data. So they, they are measuring something. They are comparing your child to other children their age. And in those um, assessments, you can actually compare them using the math to children with a diagnosis and without and see whether they're closer to which group. So that is a really positive part of those assessments. Also, those assessments ask the same questions in multiple ways. So hopefully they, they screen out um, people that really don't understand the questions or um, who are determined to present a child in a particular way, which happens a lot with teachers on the whole, tend to rate children as much higher functioning um, than they truly are, which is a lovely statement about teachers, right? Teachers love to see, on the most part, they love to see the best in their kids, but that can be an impediment to, to treatment. The challenge with the Connors and the Basque is that they're not actually measuring anything. They're measuring our perception of things. So when they're asking mom or dad, does your child have this difficulty? What they're really asking is, how much do you see them have this difficulty? Yeah. So um, I think, I don't remember who made the point, but someone made the point a minute ago about why aren't we asking, why aren't we weighting the client's description the child or adult heavier than the other people. And that is a major area of emphasis that I think we do need to shift in our assessment. We should be weighting the individual's ratings of themselves as much higher. And there are, so if, if you are taking your child for an assessment, there are self ratings for children and adults and adolescents. Um, and if they're not 
offering those to you, please ask because those should really be weighted heavily. love that you bring that up like saying like okay, this is a thing like I love putting this information out there because I feel like so often parents don't I mean they know where to start start with your family you know care physician and, and things like that but no it, I like putting information out there for people that if this isn't brought to you then ask about it and so thank you for sharing that I didn't even I didn't know that that there was a thing for self-reporting for kids like in my head that would make sense and I would like advocate for it but it's good to know that it is out there yes okay you can, you can even ask children without a rating scale how does it feel to sit down and do your homework how does it feel to listen to your lecture what's it like when someone says to you you just need to settle down or calm your body or relax and they can give you pretty kids as young as four can give you pretty accurate descriptions of that that's so powerful and i'm and i'm always, you know, and promoting, you know, having those conversations with, you know, within families and because <clears throat> I don't want it to turn into a conversation of something being wrong with them or like it's strictly, it's not just behavioral, mm -hmm. it's, it's neurodevelopmental. So yes, have fostering those kind of conversations at home. Yeah. Um, Leslie, do you mind share? So like if we kind of fast forward on the timeline of ADHD from being, you know, from being child to kind of later on in life or like early adults or even newly diagnosed adults. How can that look different or any tips for that age range of individuals? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we can think about is remember when we talked a moment ago about teaching those compensatory strategies early on, as we are growing, we're gaining skills and skills and skills, and we're also gaining uh, challenged adaptations to things. So we can also develop um, negative reactions or poor self-esteem about things or possibly depression. So if you are trying to get a diagnosis later in life or you're newly diagnosed, it's still important to ask yourself that same question of what is the impact of what's going on inside on my functioning because it will look different in adulthood. So rates of hyperactivity typically fall on their own without treatment. They don't tend to go away, but they do tend to naturally fall around late adolescence, early adulthood, with the exception of the very extreme end that persist. Um, ADHD symptoms in adults can look a lot like carelessness or laziness is what I hear a lot of. I'm just so lazy, I, I can't even get up to put my laundry in. I can't make myself do the dishes. What happens when we attribute that to our character is that we're actually missing a symptom. That's not typical. Most people can, barring very extreme circumstances, look at a, a coffee cup in their room and think, oh, I should take that down. And then they just, go take it down. I've always wondered what that would feel like. That seems amazing to me. Um, so when people aren't able to do that, 
and they go in to seek treatment, sometimes they're saying to their therapist or their assessor, I'm just so lazy, I'm so depressed, I'm so anxious about things. And unless the assessor knows what to ask, they may never even know that what's happening is ADHD. Can mask all of that. And you alluded in the beginning that if it's missed in childhood, then oftentimes it's usually around like early adulthood, college years that that really starts to come out. You know, what things do you feel like people start? I mean, obviously any of the symptoms, but is there like a commonality of things that people really start to notice that they're like, ooh, something could be going on that I need to get evaluated? Yes. Um, in college-age students, typically what we see is when all the supports of the home are removed. So not, not particular to schoolwork, but someone is not cooking or just reminding you to eat. Someone is not reminding you to go to the doctor um, or tracking whether you've been to the dentist. What will be first to go is kind of all those self-care things. So we see kids that transition into college all of a sudden um, either gaining or losing weight rapidly, uh, withdrawing from social supports. A child or a child, an adult now who was a, an AB student, um, I'll give you an example of me again. My first semester in college after being a 4.0 student was a, I had a 1.6 my first semester and I lost, I had a full ride to college and lost it all and was not diagnosed at the time. So those are the kind of things we just see once those supports are removed, um, everything for some folks can just kind of fall away. And if we don't know that that's what's happening, it can be very disturbing for people like, oh, I thought, you know, kind of shattering for their self-image. I thought I was this good person. I've got a lot of my value from my achievement. Um, and then I come here and that value is gone. So who am I? What worth do I have? Um, and hopefully things have changed in modern universities where that'll get identified early and we can re-engage with supports. For the folks that are older than college age, what we do see is when parenthood kicks in and the demands of life get really intense very quickly, and this goes for, for all genders, um, then we see a big impact not because supports have fallen away, but because demand is really high. So now I have to track everything I was tracking, which was already hard, and I have to keep this small human alive. Um, and so we see that big uptick in anxiety, depression for undiagnosed ADHDers or diagnosed ADHDers as well, uh, if they don't reach out and get additional support. Okay, I think we finally made it to our last bullet, which um, before I even ask the question, I just, we always obviously want to be very diverse and talk about all the populations as be inclusive as much as we can. Um, so I want to ask you about people of color and how, you know, diagnosis looks there, but I do want to honor and just hold a moment of collective grief and acknowledgement of the awful ongoing continued racial injustices that have been happening in America recently. So um, I know our podcast has a topic every week and yet that's necessary to share. So I wanted to make sure we did that. Okay, how, do, how does ADHD look in people of color or diagnosis or misdiagnosis? 
How does that kind of translate? So the disorder itself presents similarly across age, gender, um, and ethnicity and culture. The symptoms seem to be consistent and there's there's three main types of ADHD, hyperactive type, which is predominantly those outward facing symptoms, inattentive type, which is those predominantly inward facing symptoms, and then combined. The rates of that in actual diagnosis aren't any different. However, the sociological diagnostic rates are way lower for communities of color. Um, and this is a particularly important topic for me because it's been painful for me to watch over the years and not be able to affect change as much as I wanted to in systems, but I do think it is changing. So children of color, especially who also have hyperactive impulsive behavior, don't tend to be routed towards ADHD at all. They tend to be routed towards behavioral disorders, especially a disorder called oppositional defiant disorder which is a precursor to the school-to-prison pipeline. It just is. Um, it's in almost every case. When we look at these kids with neurodevelopmental disorders later on who have made it through school but ended up in the disciplinary behavioral and then prison system, we can trace all the way back to this early diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder, which then becomes conduct disorder and then gets interpreted as criminal behavior. Um, the behavior itself does not tend to, to differ at all from their um, white peers. It's just the attribution of that from society, especially in schools. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you are known as the problem child um, and you don't have access to supports or an understanding of who you are and you're in the formative time of your personality and no one tells you, by the way, there's these other things you could do to help you not feel so angry or upset or frustrated, then you don't even know that they exist. Um, and so what I hear a lot when these issues come up is these oppositional kids, they just don't try. Um, they just need better discipline. They just, you know, their parents just didn't spank them, didn't make sure that they knew what line. And actually it's quite the opposite that these children and adolescents are reaching out for any kind of acknowledgement of what they are going through. And they are repeatedly told that the problem resides inside of them and is no one else's responsibility. And part of me, like something that it, I feel myself getting fired up. So I need to like ring it, ring it, ring it I was going to say, I have chills and I was already thinking school to prison pipeline before you even said it. And then you said it. And it just radiated. They're like, yes, yes, yes. So th that was the wording. Beautiful. Um, but the frustrating part is, is like the, for one, problem, gross, right? That, but it's called that to them. They are the, the problem. Instead of saying, like, because they're the problem, the, it is within them and they need help. It's like they're, it's a neurodevelopmental, you know, condition and, it blows my mind. Like instead, we, it's being attached to their character, their skin color, all of that, instead of for other other races, other ethnicities. It's like, well, let's look into this more, or let's, you know, maybe we need to do a referral for this, or maybe in the way that you were that the person, you know, that I loved that because it is. You can see that completely different track that 
and those labels and and things that are given to them right away and the way that that has is like they have navigated on their own and and then they're wired for survival so if everybody else is treating them that way then like you said they don't know other things that exist and they don't know any different and it's just so sad so frustrating all of the things so thank you for bringing that up i could go on and on and on but i won't and i think the other part that's really important anytime i get a chance to speak on this i kind of just take a little bit of liberty <laughs> about it that social media is trying to change this so TikTok itself as a platform if people are on it has done a lot to increase awareness of these things and really taken psych trying to take psychology a little bit out of this um city on a hill idea and bring it down and say you can advocate for yourself this is a term you can use here's what you say to get your assessment if your child is doing this and that's wonderful and i want that to continue but the responsibility for changing the system that disenfranchises our children of color is really on us as people in positions of privilege in the mental health system if we're complaining about it then we had better be taking great care with any client that we have um who is a person of color in any kind of minority group to make sure that we are getting additional trainings. You know, every mental health professional I've ever met believes that they are really great and lovely and wonderful. And that is a very easy way that we can forget that we have to keep growing and changing because bias is so implicit. So as a community, I think we really need to take responsibility for changing these systems, for advocating, for trying to change legislation, trying to change teacher training programs, which don't prepare teachers for this. And then teachers get blamed for things when they've had no training. Um, so I just feel really fired up, yes, <laughs> about our responsibility and that this is really should be our lifetime work is trying to correct some of the inequity in our mental health system. Absolutely. You don't ever have to be, a, you don't ever have to apologize for being fired up because that's the work and that's us doing the work and you know for uh mostly cisgender white dominated profession it's definitely our work to do all of those things you mentioned and also uplifting our professionals of color in this field to give them a voice as well um and i know i'm sorry i know that was the last question but i have to ask because it's just it's nagging at me because I think, uh, you know, we often see, we are aware as professionals, the overlap between trauma and ADHD symptoms. So as far as like screening, diagnosis, even just for individuals looking for a diagnosis, like how does that look? How does that get teased out? How do they impact each other? I know, you know, trauma isn't creating ADHD because that's a neurodevelopmental disorder that's there from birth, but how do those things coincide and correlate together, especially systematic oppression and systematic racism and those big level traumas. Yeah. yeah, so when you ask someone about symptoms that they are experiencing, just symptoms, do you have trouble focusing? Do you ever feel like you can't understand what people are saying as they're speaking? Do you have trouble sleeping, eating? If we just go on those symptoms, many people would qualify for a variety of diagnoses. 
So it's really important to ask when you're trying to figure that out, when did they begin? Did they happen after an event or before an event? Have they always been there? Did they get worse? But the other piece is really remembering that having ADHD does make you more likely to experience trauma, especially traumas that have to do with social exclusion. Um, If you are an externalizing child of color with ADHD, you're going to have an even higher likelihood of encountering traumatic interactions with teachers or law enforcement just because of the virtue of that externalizing behavior, that being disruptive or questioning. Um, And so sometimes it happens where the trauma is diagnosed first because perhaps there's been an observable event, but it could be exacerbated by an ADHD, which if we don't know that it's there and we don't treat that part, it can feel frustrating for someone to undergo trauma treatment, you know, how long that takes to really heal from our traumatic experiences and feel like there's this leftover symptom and then feel like maybe I failed. Maybe I didn't do the work right or I didn't try hard enough. So anytime you see trauma symptoms that look like they overlap with ADHD, I think it's important for clinicians to refer out or to to do an assessment or even just ask some questions. And the opposite, if you have a child with ADHD, who is also showing signs of withdrawal, severe depression, perhaps self-harm, we cannot miss that trauma diagnosis because those things both need their attention and treatment if a person is to really fully heal. It's like, I like, it's like asking the questions and it feels like what came, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, but it's like both of those are equally important. And if you're addressing one and you still see lingering effects of other of you know the ADHD or vice versa then to look into you know that other as well but like I like when we're trained but others you know on the outside with the child like parents or the individual themselves like how important you know onset or you know duration or and what those symptoms how they have kind of come up you know, timeline, all of those things, the collateral information is, is critical. Yeah. So thank you so much for being here. I just have one final question for you that we ask, ask all of our guests is if you had any last minute thoughts, um, any last minute things that you would like to leave our listeners with, or like a mantra, something you live by just to kind of wrap up things for our our listeners yeah I think specifically related to this topic I encounter a lot of people because we talk a lot about the negative impact of ADHD and other developmental based disorders a lot of people are very afraid to confront it to look at medications to have a label but I will tell you that as someone who wasn't diagnosed until I was 30 The diagnosis was the thing that really helped me feel like I knew who I was and find my community. So if you think that this could be you, it's okay to feel the feelings of fear, but please know that there's a whole community of us out here that are ready to celebrate you in all of your challenges and all of your strengths. And there's a whole world um, of really good things waiting for you. That's beautiful. We're always about reducing stigma and being welcoming with open arms because we know 
all of us in this human experience are suffering in some way, right? And so just taking the first step to, and if it's not that, okay, you learned something about yourself, you weeded it out, you maybe found out it's something else, but now you know, rather than just spinning in your head and wondering what it could be and, you know, having those internalized thoughts. So thank you for that. Um, thank you again for being here. We could literally talk to you all day and we would love to have you back anytime. Um, if you want, um, you know, we can, all, you know, Leslie is on TikTok. That's how we found her. That's how we connected. You know, many of our guests have been TikTok professionals. So that's been amazing. Um, we could maybe connect your handle if people want to follow you. Uh, so thank you. And then for our listeners, make sure that you are liking, commenting, subscribing. If you have any questions or if you have any comments or feedback for us about today's episode, um, anything that specifically you wanted to make sure that Leslie saw or knew, we can absolutely communicate that with her as well. Um, and then just make sure you tune in next week. Uh, we did start our official Man Down Men's Mental Health Series with my husband, Tommy, and he is bringing for our second episode, bringing his friend Lindell Lewis next week to talk about another, just have a real raw discussion about men's mental health. So make sure you tune in next Sunday for that. And we will see you soon or you'll hear from us soon. <laughs> and everyone have a good week. Bye. Bye.